Heavenly Father, uh, Father, what a blessing a church community is, the gathering, the fellowship with other believers. How hard would this walk with you be, Father, if we had to do it alone and we were left only to our own abilities and gifts? And Father, you and your wisdom have made sure that we would not have that limitation, that we would be surrounded by others. And after a season in which that opportunity was taken away from us, Father, it's all the more evident to me and and everyone, I'm sure, that this time together is important and necessary. So I thank you, Father, in advance for the opportunity to rejoin with my brothers and sisters, and I pray, Father, for all of them now as we continue in this time apart for a little longer. I pray that you're preparing hearts to be regathered, to address fear, to address worry, to build excitement and trust and confidence that you are in control and that you will see things to a proper and good conclusion. We also pray for safety, Father, for our health. We know that one day we will leave this earth and we will be with you, and that day has been determined by you. And when it comes, Father, it will be a day of glory and celebration. But at the same time, Father, we don't want to face that day in carelessness or foolishness. We don't want to provoke you, Father, by, by taking lightly the dangers of our world. We want to be prudent in all that we do. So I ask, Father, that you would give us wisdom as we move forward. You would give us safety and protection, and you would give us courage to be a part of it. And now, Father, in your word, I pray for clarity. I pray your words would come out of me as you designed them to be understood and intended them to be understood, and that we would make the most of them in our walk with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, Matthew 26. We're in the New Testament uh, ordinance of the Last Supper. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus only commanded two things of his church, two rituals that we would perform on a regular basis. The first of those that he commanded for every believer was water baptism. That's the ordinance that we perform shortly after we have come to faith, or at least that's when we should do it. And the second ordinance that he gave the church that we observe regularly is the communion meal, sometimes called the Last Supper observance. We perform this periodically as we care to, whenever that may be. In this church, that's once a month. And we do that to remember the meal that took place the night before Jesus died on the cross when he was in the upper room with his disciples. And that is where we are now in the timeline of the events that we're studying in the last week of Jesus's life on earth. We have reached the evening of Passover, the 14th of Nisan on the Jewish calendar. And on that year, on the 14th of Nisan, Uh, you have a Wednesday night, which is actually the start of a Thursday. That's how the calendar of that last week played out in Jesus's life. So as we enter in now to Passover on that week, it is, again, an evening first. Passover starts at night. And it is a Wednesday night, as we would understand it, part of the Thursday from a Jewish calendar. And on that night, families all over the city of Jerusalem now have sat down to enjoy their Passover meal, the lamb and the bread and the herbs and so on. And as evening fell that night, Jesus' disciples turned to him in Matthew 26 and they said, where are we gonna eat our meal? What preparations should we make for this night? Jesus told them, go into the city, find a certain man carrying a water pot and he would lead you to an upper room in his home where he had prepared a Passover meal for no one in particular, but it will be for us. 
And that's what transpired. And so now we reach that moment in the upstairs room of this home somewhere in the city as Jesus and the rest of the disciples recline on the floor at this table to enjoy their Passover meal. And Jesus says in verse 18, this is the Passover for him. This is the Passover meal that we're about to study. Now, as we get into the study today, this study will show how the Passover meal that started on that evening will transform into something new and different that Jesus institutes on that night, something we now call communion. Every Christian since this day has observed uh, this version of the meal in some form or another, and it has served to unite generations of believers in all the years since. The question for us today is, what does it mean? Why do we have this in the church? Why do we keep repeating this ritual? And in order to understand that, we're gonna spend this week and a little bit of next week looking at this meal in detail. And next week, as we come back, it's the day of the month that we would normally observe our own communion meal here at this church. So it's appropriate that as we come out of this study, we'll have a chance to put that into practice next week when we study and when we participate in communion. All right, so today, let's begin this study by looking at the historical circumstances that surrounded the meal in this day. And as we do that, we come back into the text at verse 20, and Matthew brings us back to a theme he has addressed already in this chapter twice, and that is the theme of Jesus's betrayer, Judas. So we pick up now for a third time looking at this man, but it leads us into the meal. So verse 20, now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi? Jesus said to him, Yeah, you've said it yourself. All right, so evening had come, and therefore that means that the Passover has started. And Jesus and his disciples, now reclining at this table, begin the meal. And at some point in the meal, Jesus announces that one of these 12 men is going to betray him to the authorities that night. And the men, as you might imagine, they start looking around the table at one another and they look at him and they're all aghast at the suggestion that one of them could do that to Jesus. But it's interesting to me that no one in that moment seems to suspect Judas of being that man. And you know he was a thief because that's already been given to us. So you wonder, shouldn't some of them have noticed that he had this slightly uh, uh, evil tendency, this dishonesty about him. And of course, we also know he was an unbeliever, so surely they might have noticed that sometimes Judas just doesn't get what everyone else is getting. My point is this, it's interesting to me that no one picked up on the fact that he had the potential to be this person. And after each man issues his denials, Jesus says, well, here's how I intend to reveal the identity of this man. He gives a unique way. He says it's going to be the one who dips his hand into the same bowl that Jesus was using at that table. And that comment reveals something about Judas and it also reveals something about the meal. First, the fact that Judas's hand 
was close enough to Jesus at that table to use the same bowl as Jesus tells us something about the heart of that man, and here's why. Around the Passover table, it was usually shaped like a rectangle table. You'd have bowls set out in various places for the people to share around that table. And the entire event of the Passover meal was carefully scripted. Everything was done in a very specific order. In fact, today you commonly hear people call Passover meals at Seder meals. You may have heard that term. Seder is simply the word for order because the meal is so orderly, so scripted in a certain way. And so around the table you have people seating at certain positions and that too is scripted according to the Passover tradition. Traditionally the table is arranged so that the person of most honor is seated at one of the short ends of the table and of course Jesus being the most honored would have sat at that position And then the rest of his disciples were seated around the table, starting from his left side, moving clockwise around the table in an order of honor. So the one seated immediately to the left of Jesus would have been the disciple of greatest honor. And then as you move clockwise, you reduce people's honor. And the one seated immediately to Jesus' right hand would be the one in the position of least honor. But now, you'd like to preserve the dignity of the person who had the... Uh, responsibility to sit in that last seat. And so a special Passover rule was implemented that required that the youngest person by age would sit in the right-hand seat. And in that way, the person who was seated there could rightly say that they were required to sit there. It wasn't a question of honor. That was their assigned position. Now, if you go to John's gospel, you find out that John is the one who sat in the position to the right of Jesus, which tells us John was the youngest disciple. And that makes sense because John lived the longest of any of the disciples according to church tradition. And if he is the youngest, he had the longest to live, we assume. Interestingly, seated just to the right of John in the next position up was Peter. And that's interesting because it tells us Peter, uncharacteristically, assumed a place of humility at the table that night. He sat in the least honorable position available to him, which was the one directly up from the youngest seat. So we know Jesus is at the head of the table. We know John is at Jesus' right hand in the position of youngest, and Peter is in the position above that. So the real question we wanna know today is which disciple chose to seat himself on the left side of Jesus in the place of greatest honor? You know, before I told you all of these things, you might have assumed, well, that sounds like something Peter would have done, but he didn't do that. But Jesus' comment in verse 23 gives us the answer, and the answer may surprise you. Jesus says, the one who can dip bread in my bowl is my betrayer. Now look, there are only two seats that are close enough to Jesus to have been the person to dip their hand in that bowl. And we know the one on Jesus' right-hand side was John, and John is obviously not Jesus' betrayer. So that leaves only one other option. The one seated to Jesus' left The one who placed himself in the position of greatest honor was his betrayer, Judas. I mean, can you imagine the nerve of this guy? He's about to betray Jesus, and he takes the place of honor at the table. This tells you a lot more about the the heart of this man. His shamelessness, his arrogance, his self-deception to think that he was about to turn this man over to the authorities, and in his own heart, he is self-righteous about it. He feels as if he's doing something honorable, we must assume. Why else would he have assumed that place at the table? Absolutely no shame. 
Now this is not some wayward prodigal son disciple or some misguided believer who's just been momentarily tripped up by his greed or whatever. No, this man is a calculating enemy of God who somehow can see himself as the most honored of the group of men he's about to betray. He has never been physically closer to the creator of the universe than he was that night as he sat next to Jesus and yet he has never been so far away, spiritually speaking. And that reminds us that sometimes we can be in the company of those who mimic Christian culture and yet are not truly born again. Judas's three years with Jesus is simply proof to us that associating with other believers is not by itself enough to bring someone to faith. They may participate in gatherings with us, they may sit under teaching with us, but the truth never penetrates their hearts. They aren't believers, and therefore they don't even realize what they lack, because until you're born again, you just don't know the difference. Unbelievers are not necessarily gonna be present in every gathering, of course, but look, if one of the 12 of Jesus can be an apostle and get away with it and nobody seems to know, well then, obviously, we should expect to see a few around us from time to time. Now look, this isn't a problem, though, that we go about solving through witch hunts. You know, it's not like we ask you to show your Christian card at the door before you walk in. That's not how this works. The way you find a Judas within the gathering is that you simply do the same thing that you have always been doing or should have been doing, and that is preach the word. That's it. You know, as you proclaim the gospel, And as you teach the Bible consistently, any unbeliever that might be seated in your midst is gonna show themselves in one of two ways. Either they're gonna be driven to their knees in repentance from a conviction that they're going to feel out of the word because of the spirit of God and because of the kindness of God's mercy. And as they feel that repentance, they will become Christian. That is, they will be moved to faith as a result of the preaching of the word. And that obviously is the ultimate solution that we want for any unbeliever who would enter into our midst. It's why, after all, we would even welcome them in to begin with. But there is a second option. If you preach the word properly, and if you do it consistently, if there are unbelievers in your midst sooner or later, they will be driven out the door. If they're not driven to their knees, they will be driven away in disgust over what they hear because you simply cannot sit under the conviction of God's word indefinitely and not respond one of those two ways. You know, if your heart is not submitted to the authority of God's word, then you will chafe under its demands and you will ultimately rebel against its precepts. There is simply no standing still when the word of God is preached with authority, and that's God's intention. You know, in Judas's case, Jesus's teaching did have that effect eventually. Eventually, it provoked his unbelieving heart to rebel and ultimately betray his brothers and his Lord. And so when you see an unbeliever who might bolt out of the door, so to speak, that's never our first choice and we're never happy to see that. But let me tell you, it is better in the long run that they would move one way or the other, than it is to have them sit in our midst indefinitely, unidentified, perhaps self-deceived into thinking they have something they do not. Because if an unbeliever can feel comfortable in the gathering 
in the company of believers and do that without their own heart being changed, then it says something about that gathering. It says we're doing something wrong because we've somehow left behind the message of the gospel. We've set aside the power of the word of God because we've made an environment in which a lack of change in the heart is acceptable, is possible, and that is a failure of our mission. So when we preach, we do so either to convert or ultimately, or in some cases, unfortunately, to put people out. But it's not because that's our desire, it's because the worst possible case is to think you're saved when you're not. So our choice is to simply do what God has always asked us to do, preach the word and let God figure out what comes of it. So Jesus' method here of revealing Judas showed us something about that man because it revealed his position at the table and therefore his prideful, arrogant heart. But it also revealed something about the meal itself and that's what I wanna talk about next, this Passover meal that we're studying which became our communion observance. As I said, the meal follows this very special ancient script and because of that script, because of the order of the meal being so precise, we can know something about where they are now in the timing of that night by the events that are recorded in the text at this point. But if I'm to show you that, I first have to give you what the event entails. I have to go through the script of the Passover, at least at a high level with you, something called the Haggadah, which means a telling, that is the telling of the story of Exodus. And here's a simple summary of the steps in this evening Passover meal, this Seder meal. The meal is arranged around three activities, generally speaking. You have drinking wine, you have eating various food items, and then you have the reciting of certain liturgy that tells the story of the Exodus. And these three activities are interchanged and spread out over the course of the meal. And I'm gonna just run through quickly the order of these things. And I, on the slide I'm gonna show you now, you're going to see uh, little symbols representing each one of these steps. But I just want you to get a big picture for a moment. So first you have the first cup of wine, followed by washing, and then uh, vegetables are eaten, and then a th- piece of bread is broken, and that piece of the bread is hidden somewhere in the house to be discovered later. Then you enter to the second cup of wine, and then more washing, and then a prayer, and then the bread and the bitter herbs are mixed together, and the bread is dipped into the herbs and eaten. Bitter herbs are prepared out of bowls at that point. Then you have roast lamb prepared from that sacrifice earlier in the day, and that lamb is eaten. Then that hidden bread is found and that hidden bread is eaten as a dessert. And then finally, a third cup of wine followed by grace being recited and then a fourth cup of wine. And then a door is opened in the home for Elijah's foretold return out of Malachi. So there's the whole script in a nutshell. Every one of those details contains a symbolic element or symbolic meaning that when you put it all together tells the story of the Exodus. Now it's primarily from a historical point of view a remembrance of Israel's leaving of Egypt under the Exodus and coming into the promised land under Moses and then later Joshua. But Christians today also recognize that the symbols of that same meal tell a second story. They tell the story of Jesus' death on the cross as the Lamb of God. We know that. So in a way you can say the meal looks backward and it looks forward at the same time. It looks back to Israel's flight from Egypt 
and it looks forward to the Messiah's sacrifice for Israel's sins. Now, in verse 23, when Jesus goes to reveal his betrayer, he says, it'll be the man who dips bread into the herb bowl with me, and that event takes place roughly between the second and the third cups of this meal. You see that in the chart. More specifically, it happens after the second cup is poured, but before the lamb and the bread are eaten. And that's the moment Jesus dismisses Judas, and that's significant. He chose to dismiss Judas at the point in the meal in which everything that follows does not apply to Judas. How so? Well, all the events of the Passover meal that are symbolized by the various things that are done, all the, those events that had happened prior to this moment, they all symbolized Israel's slavery in Egypt and, more generally, humanity's slavery to sin. For example, the bitter herbs that were in the bowl, they represent Israel's bitterness in suffering under harsh treatment while they were in bondage in Egypt. And the second cup of wine, for example, is called the cup of deliverance because it represents the Lord's promise to free his people from that slavery. Those are symbols that pertain to every Jew. Every Jew has that heritage of their ancestors being in slavery. And certainly, it applies to every human being because we are all born into bondage to sin because of Adam and our inheriting of Adam's nature. We came into this world already enslaved to a sin nature, and that's why we all need a savior. Only we don't need Moses, we need Jesus. So here again, the Passover meal is representative both of something in the past and of something in the future. But at the point where Judas was dismissed, all the symbolism in the meal prior to that was with regard to situations that apply to Judas. Not only the history of Israel, but also the nature of his heart. He was, in fact, still in bondage to sin. He still was somebody who was entrapped in that slavery, so to speak. But from this point forward in the meal, on our timeline as you look at it, again, you notice right after the bitter herbs and then you follow with bread and lamb, right there at that juncture is where Jesus dismisses Judas. And every symbol after this moves forward to the solution that God will provide for the problem of slavery, both slavery in Egypt and slavery to sin. The lamb, for example, will be eaten at this point. The bread will be consumed, and the final two cups of wine, called the cups of redemption and the cup of praise. All of these symbols represent things that were not true for Judas, and they represent our personal exodus from sin because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And I can go through the symbols and you can see it for yourself. The lamb, well, of course, he represent, the lamb represents Christ, the lamb of God who is sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. The bread, well, that bread, as you may know, is unleavened, it is striped, and it is pierced to make sure that the, the, the bread can't rise with any leaven, and that represents Jesus' body. Striped, that is scourged by the whips, pierced like as if pierced on the cross, all of his body being broken for our sins. That third cup of wine, the cup of redemption, well, that represents God's promise to redeem his people. The fourth cup, called the cup of praise, it represents God's promise to bring his people into glory. But none of these symbols and the events they represent pertain to Judas or to any unbeliever, and 
the ritual that Jesus is about to institute this night, based out of this meal, the thing we call communion, is likewise only for believers. Because the symbolism of communion speaks to things we know and we can celebrate, things that are relevant to us because of our faith, but they are not relevant to unbelievers. So Jesus dismisses Judas at this precise moment because this is the dividing moment in the meal between a story of sin and the story of redemption. Judas knows the first half, but he'll never know the second half. And as he dismisses Judas, Jesus says in verse 24 that the Messiah will go as the Old Testament prophecies foretold that he would. In other words, just because Judas was being dismissed at that moment to go turn in Jesus and betray him, Judas was not, as a result of that, changing God's plan one iota. And in fact, he's just merely enacting God's plan at this point. Because the Old Testament prophets foretold that the Messiah would hang on a tree, we're told. And that he would be pierced for our sins, Isaiah says. And that he would be betrayed by someone close to him, we're told. Those things were written long before Judas and the religious leaders hatched this plan and certainly long before the day that Jesus dismissed Judas. In fact, the the way in which he leaves this meal tells us Jesus even determined the timing of the moment when Judas would go to betray him. So obviously, Judas had no control over these circumstances and that's Jesus' point. What's happening here is still in God's control. He is the author of this plan. But nevertheless... Judas was still to blame for his role in what happens here. And you notice in verse 24, Jesus goes on to pronounce woe on this man for his part in these activities. Now, woe is the biblical term for eternal judgment. When Jesus pronounces woe on you, it is his judgment that you will go into eternal damnation. There is no coming back from a woe when it is pronounced on you from Jesus. So we're learning that in this moment, he is being condemned. Now, how can God hold Judas accountable if he's just doing what God expected, if he's doing what God planned? And if it ultimately brings a blessing to us, then why is Judas in trouble for it? Well, the answer is simple. Judas is acting in this moment out of his own volition, out of his own desire to sin, and all who sin are accountable to God. You know, he's participating in a conspiracy here. He's taking a bribe to pervert justice. He's bringing harm to someone he knows to be innocent. Those are crimes under the law. And so he's gonna be held accountable for his sin because that's what a just God does. He is a God who holds people accountable for their sin because that's what justice requires. God being perfect in all ways, including injustice, he can't turn a blind eye to sin. And just because he has the power to turn Judas's sin to good for eternal purposes does not become an excuse for Judas. You know, just because God has the power to turn your sin into something good does not lessen guilt for sin. Nor does it give you license to sin all the more, as some have suggested, which Paul addresses in Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 1, when he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Paul is asking the question, if if God has the power to forgive us and to turn everything we do into something good, eternally speaking, well then, what difference does it make if we sin? In fact, why don't we just sin more? Because that just gives God more opportunity to show grace and to turn things into good. No, it's a perverted argument, which is why Paul goes to verse two and says, may it never be. 
The point is not to manipulate God or to play some game. God's power to turn bad things to good does not excuse bad things. God is using Judas' sin here to accomplish something very good in the long run, but his sin still deserves consequences. Has anyone in history been granted more privilege than Judas in living with Jesus for these years to see his miracles and hear his teaching? And yet, has anyone done more harm to Jesus as a result? Well, actually, yes. There was one actor who has been closer to God than Judas, but also done more harm to God than Judas, and that one actor is Satan. In Ezekiel 28, by the way, you can go read about how Satan was serving in the heavenly tabernacle before he rebelled and began a war with God. So I guess it's no coincidence then that Satan is now indwelling Judas as he brings Jesus down in this moment. They're really two very similar characters in the way they play out in the scriptures. And so Jesus says to Judas that his punishment will ultimately make him wish that he had never been born. Kind of sounds like something your parents would say to you, doesn't it? The difference here is Jesus means it. And this is the perspective that all who come to experience God's wrath will also share, in my opinion. I think every person, when faced with the prospect of eternity and punishment, may wish that they had never been born. But more than that, I think what Jesus is saying here is that Judas's personal experience in judgment will be worse than most others who are there with him. Because scripture indicates that there are varying levels of punishment in hell for unbelievers. Verses like this seem to suggest that. So just as God makes distinctions in rewards for believers based on our service, Well, so it seems God also makes distinctions in punishment for unbelievers based on the nature of their sins. And so in some way that we don't quite understand, some unbelievers will receive greater punishment in hell. But according to Jesus, few worse than Judas. So after he identifies Judas, the traitor, as you notice here, he tries at first to maintain his innocence in verse 25, saying, surely it's not me, right? to which Jesus says, well, you've sent it yourself. And what he means by that is that Judas has just made a confession of sorts, unintentionally, because as you notice, Jesus never identified his betrayer by name. And yet, there were two men at that table that night who were close enough to dip their bread into the bowl with Jesus. In fact, it's logical to assume that before this moment, both Judas and John had been doing that because that would have been the bowl they shared with Jesus. And yet, Only Judas spoke up to defend himself. John said nothing. And so in doing that, Judas unwittingly betrayed himself and identified himself as the guilty party. And Jesus says, you've said it yourself. So he's been exposed and now he's been dismissed. And so the rest of the meal can continue. Let's look at that meal now. Verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Judas is gone. Jesus now, he moves ahead with the rest of the Passover meal. Uh, except that as we go forward from this point, Jesus departs from the expected Seder, from the order of the Passover meal. 
Jesus strikes out in a new direction, making changes to what was prescribed for Passover. And he makes these changes in this meal in this year because this is the year that the Passover feast is going to be fulfilled. Now, we've already noted, as I was showing you earlier, how the symbols of the Passover meal picture various aspects of the Exodus story, and they can also be used to see Jesus' work on the cross as the Lamb of God. But of course, as Jews gathered every year in this meal, they unknowingly were declaring Jesus' story on the cross. They only saw it in hindsight as a story of the Exodus. They hadn't yet understood that the Passover meal was also a picture of the Messiah. But in this year, the Passover in Israel is going to see this prophecy fulfilled and explained by the true Lamb of God who's about to be sacrificed on Passover. And so what you're gonna see now in this meal is Jesus making sure that his disciples do not miss what the symbolism of the meal means to him personally and to his mission as Messiah. But because of that, because he's about to show them the bigger picture of this meal, moving it from Exodus to the story of Jesus on the cross, there are some changes coming in this meal. And the biggest one of these changes is there can only be one lamb at this table tonight. And to explain what I mean, I want you to consider again the order of the events in the Passover meal. We know, back to my chart, that we are between the second and third cups of wine on that night. We know the bread and the herbs in the bowl have already been eaten. That happened before Judas was dismissed. And if you look at the script up there, the next thing you would expect is that they would start to eat the bread and the lamb. But I want you to notice, Matthew makes no mention here of anyone eating lamb. And in fact, none of the gospels mention any lamb at the table or any lamb being eaten. Every other element that's on that chart, every other element in the Passover Seder is mentioned somewhere in all of the gospels, except the lamb which strongly suggests that there was no lamb present on that table that night. Now in John's gospel, you can see how this has confused the disciples who obviously expected to see a Passover lamb like they would every year because they make a comment about something missing from the table. In John 13, 27, this is what we read. After the morsel, Satan entered into Judas and then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. That's where Judas was dismissed. And then next, now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose Jesus had said this to Judas. So some were assuming, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to Judas, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else he should give something to the poor. Isn't that interesting? So as Jesus dismisses Judas, even though he called him a betrayer and he said, go do what you will do, the disciples aren't quite clear on what's going on right now. And so they start talking amongst themselves, why did he send Judas out? Why did Judas leave in the middle of our Passover meal? No one does that. And the reason they land on is one of two options. Either he was going out to make a donation to the poor, which still would make no sense in the middle of the Passover meal. Or they say, he's gone out to get supplies for the feast. That is, he's gone out to buy something we need for this meal. That makes even less sense unless there's something missing. I think the point is that they are sitting here halfway through the Passover meal ready for the lamb that's not on the table and they assume that Jesus must have sent Judas out on an errand to buy the thing that's missing to buy the Passover lamb, the roasted lamb. 
So now the question becomes, why wasn't there a roasted lamb at that table? Well, because there was a lamb in that room seated before them. The Passover lamb for that year was the lamb of God. And as he sits in that room, he wants to make clear to the disciples that the symbolism of that lamb points to him and he didn't want another lamb sitting on the table to compete with that imagery and to confuse them about the meaning. So there's no lamb eaten at this particular meal. Without a lamb at the table, that means that at this stage of the meal, the only thing they have left to do is to eat the bread alone along with the vegetables that were already there. So in verse 26, that's why we move directly to that moment. You notice you skip from the bowl with the herbs and the bread straight to Jesus breaking bread in verse 26. He takes it, he breaks it, and he hands it out. It says everyone gets a piece of it. Now the bread that they used in that day was unleavened bread because that's the requirement for the Passover. So the best way to imagine that is a hard cracker. And they would break this like you would break a cracker. And as Jesus does this, he points to himself. He tells them that as they eat this bread, they are eating his body. This bread now has come to represent him. And the symbolism, obviously, is that this is a picture representation of what Jesus' body is going to be doing when it hangs on the cross. He's not saying to them, you literally eat my body, because he's still alive, he's there in the room. They're not eating him in a literal sense. It's meant symbolically. But it's talking about them taking him in. Eat the body refers to taking Jesus in like we do when we believe in him. You know, as you believe in Christ, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, enters your body and you become born again spiritually. So in that sense, we take him in like someone who would eat bread takes it into their body. So Jesus at this moment has just changed the Passover Seder. There is no prescription in the Seder meal for the host to take bread break it, hand it out, and say, you are eating my body. That is not part of the Seder script. Jesus has now added that. And then he changes the meal now for another time. He takes the third cup of the meal, the cup of redemption. Now in the Passover celebration, this third cup is a uh, representation of God's promise to redeem Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery. But now in verse 28, he says, From now on, this cup will represent my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So he's changed the meal three ways so far. No lamb, he's the lamb. Bread now being representative of his body, the wine now being representative of his blood. None of those things are in the normal Seder. And then finally, he alters the Passover meal one more way, and I think the most dramatic way. He declines to drink the fourth cup of wine, which customarily ended that meal. In verse 29, he says, this third cup that we just poured will be the last time I drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. Now, the term fruit of the vine is significant here because it is a specific Jewish reference to a kind of wine that is pure, without additives, which was served at Passover and at Passover only. So in other words, to say fruit of the vine to a Jew only means Passover wine. So what Jesus just said is, I will not have any more Passover wine until I have the fourth cup with you in the kingdom. So he was not saying, I'm not just, I'm not gonna have any kind of wine. In fact, we know when he hangs on the cross that he's offered a small amount of a vinegar wine on on, on a sponge or so 
and that Jesus lets it touch his mouth. So for those who might think, oh, he broke his promise, well, they're misunderstanding the promise. The promise was not to drink Passover wine after this moment. And from these details, from the fact that he's made these four changes, he's clearly moving somewhere new. It's off the script of the Passover meal. And that means that Jesus has now come to the point in the meal where he has taken the cup of redemption, not taken the cup of praise, pointed to the bread as his body, pointed to the lamb as himself for lack of having a lamb at the table, and he has never brought the Passover meal to a close. Think about that for a minute. That meal does not finish until you have the fourth cup of wine and you invite Elijah in who is supposed to come before the end of the age, before the coming of Christ again. So in effect, Jesus suspended that Passover meal so that it was never actually finished. Not even to this day, not as I stand here with you now, that fourth cup has never been enjoyed by Jesus and so the Passover meal of that night is in a a kind of suspended animation. It has never finished. And you gotta remember, what does that fourth cup of the Passover meal represent? It's called the cup of praise because it represents the fourth promise that God gave Israel. Let me read that to you. In Exodus 6, chapter 6, verse 7, when God gives Israel the Passover celebration, he says this, I will take you for my people, I will be your God, you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will bring you to that lamb which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession, I am the Lord. That's what the fourth cup represents. It is a cup representing God's promise to bring Israel into the land that he promised to their forefathers. And that, my friends, is not fulfilled until the kingdom. So, now you can see why Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup. He's not gonna drink that cup, he says, until he can fulfill what it means, which is at his second coming, when he brings the kingdom to being on earth, then and only then can he have that fourth cup. So, Rather than just stop the meal and leave it half completed, he suspends it and he puts that Passover on pause. Then, and here's the interesting part, he commands his followers to continue repeating that same moment with the third cup and with the bread so that the meal itself is seen to be continuing, never finished, continuing and ready to go to the last step whenever Jesus commands. Every time we do a communion celebration as a church and we pick up the bread and the cup at communion, we are literally jumping back in time to that moment in that meal at the point of the third cup. We are eating the bread that they ate, so to speak. We're drinking the cup that they held in that moment, the cup of redemption, and we are participating with them as if we were all at the Last Supper. It's like an instant replay running over and over so that each ensuing year, more believers can be included in that moment with Jesus and those first 11. And that cup of redemption continues to be shared every time we do the communion meal because what it represents, it represents a time for the forgiveness of sins. And that time is still open and available now and continues to be until Jesus returns. And so, as we say in the Bible, today is the day of salvation for all who would believe in Christ as Messiah. And as long as that day remains, you participate in the meal, you celebrate his redemption, you share it with a new generation of believers. And it all continues this way until the day comes when our Lord returns and the kingdom is set up on earth. And then the Bible tells us 
that we will all be gathered with our Lord at a great feast that opens or begins that kingdom period. And on that day, we're told that at the start of the feast, the Lord is gonna raise a fourth cup, the cup of praise that has been waiting, that has not yet been drank by Jesus. He said he would not drink it again until he comes for his kingdom. When that cup is raised at that meal, we will be there with him. And we will all raise that fourth cup with him. We will all finish the meal with him, praising him for our redemption and for our glory in the kingdom. And so in this really unique and beautiful way, the Lord has ensured that he will bring everyone in the church and in Israel together with him into that moment as if we were all in the upper room together with him. One generation at a time, he keeps adding to the number who get to participate in that moment, all of us celebrating his redemptive work on the cross, us being in the covenant with him, sharing that meal with him. We do that till we're with him face to face. And then when we are with him, we will all finish that meal together as if we had been there from the beginning. And that's why Paul commands us in 1 Corinthians 11 to celebrate this communion meal as a remembrance. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a meal for those who know Jesus and the symbols of the meal remind us of what he did, but they also point forward to what we have left to enjoy with him. He is adding us into this meal with each new generation of believers so that when we're all there together at the end, we'll see it with him together. But it's for the same reason that this meal is only appropriate for believers. It's why he dismissed Judas from the moment before this took place. And it's why as a church we limit participation in this meal to those who have professed Christ because it only applies to people who have professed Christ. Next week when we come back together and we have our opportunity to do our normal monthly celebration of communion, I hope you'll approach it with a a little better understanding of its meaning and its significance that you're proclaiming Jesus' death and what it means for you, yes, but you're also proclaiming that this is the third cup and I know there's a fourth cup waiting for me and we're all gonna be there together to enjoy it when he comes. So it gives us not only that opportunity to look back in thankfulness, but to look forward to a day of praise. Well, I hope that's helpful to you. We'll be back here next week and do communion together. Share what you've learned this week with someone in the body of Christ and perhaps even use the opportunity to explain this to somebody who may not know Jesus yet. For today is still the day of redemption. Today, the opportunity still exists, and we certainly want to incorporate and include as many people as God allows into this family that we're building here. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the remembrance you've given us in this meal. It's a joy to be able to participate in it and to do so now with an even better understanding. Father, help us to see this opportunity as well as our mission to share the truth with others. Don't let us just be content to have it ourselves. Father, I pray that you'd also forgive us if we have approached this meal in a lighthearted way without an appreciation for what it's truly about. And Father, as we gather next week and in all the weeks to come, we pray, Father, you'd give us a heart to participate in it with a renewed anticipation of where it's leading us, that glorious day to come when we will be at your feet, seated, enjoying this final cup to celebrate all that you've done and to begin a time of glory with you. We look forward to that day so much. As John says in his writing at the end of Revelation, we ask that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want that day as soon as you are ready. 
And we pray in thanks for all you've done and in glory for your name. Amen.